0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, this morning we are starting a quick series on core values. Before we do that, just a couple of things I want to remind you of. First, our men's conference is coming up. First weekend in February at Camp Tejas, we've got Peter Reed coming back who's spoken before. Great speaker, great time of fellowship with men and great time to get together in the word. So if you want more information about that, you can grab it back by our curved counter. Encourage you to join us there. And then I just want to say we're really happy to have crew back with us. We are grateful that you're here. Uh, I love college students. As a matter of fact, so much when I was traveling and speaking, speaking to a lot of college students, I almost got a license plate that says I Heart CS. But then I thought people might think it meant I love College Station, and I didn't want to make that mistake, right? <laughs> well, today, today we're. We're going to talk about what it means to see the king, and we're going to do that in Isaiah 6. Great passage that we've been to before. We'll be to again. As I was I love this passage. As I was studying it, I just noticed there's about a one-inch rip right down the middle of it this week. Got to put some scotch tape on there because I gotta keep reading it. As we read it, we're gonna talk about what it means to see and surrender to the king. Next week we'll talk about community and then Mission, these words that matter deeply to us as we seek to be a surrendered people on mission with God together. Well, I want to introduce you to someone you might not know. This is David Blair, a very distinguished gentleman with his pipe and hat. The picture was almost never taken. David Blair, born in 1874, was the second officer on the Titanic. David Blair was scheduled to be on the Titanic, and the day before, because a sister ship that was supposed to be sailing at the same time was not sailing, the first officer from that ship got moved to the Titanic, first officer of the Titanic got demoted to second officer, and David Blair got reassigned. So he wrote a note to his sister on a postcard, mailed it to her, he was so disappointed that he was not going to get to be on the Titanic, he exited the ship with all of his belongings, He went and rested the night before it sailed, and he woke up the morning that it sailed, put on his trousers, and he reached in his pocket, and there was a key. And that key was to the crow's nest locker on the Titanic. Crow's nest, this high point in the mass where you look out for things in the water, you know, like icebergs. And all the binoculars on the Titanic that were available to the crew were in the crow's nest locker. And David Blair, not on the Titanic, had the key. So people looking on the Titanic with the naked eye could not see icebergs because they couldn't see. They were shipwrecked. See, if you and I can't see rightly, it just might lead to shipwreck for us as well. But seeing the king is the key to surrendering to him. So we're going to look today at this Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who got a glimpse of the king, and he left with this willingness to do and obey whatever God said. And today as we talk about surrender, we're going to talk about Initial surrender when we first come to know Jesus and then daily surrender that happens throughout our lives and hopefully we will leave committed by the grace of God and empowered by the Spirit of God to live according to the will of God no matter what we face. Let's begin in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, or your translation or might say, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. Well, God, we pray today that we would get a view of you high and lifted up in all of your holiness that we would see you afresh in a way that just blows our minds and inspires our hearts and shapes our lives that we would joyfully and gladly offer this prayer of surrender here am I that we'd be committed by your grace and empowered by your spirit to live according to your will, no matter what we face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen as we look at what Isaiah saw, we're going to see seven or eight things that you see when you see the king. And the, the first is that when you see the king, there is highness. There is highness. Each week as a staff, we study the word that we're going to teach together. And one of our pastors this week said, what I love about this scene is that the Lord is not an element of the scene. He's the point of the scene. And that's true of this passage, but it ought to be true really of all of life. Jesus doesn't want to be part of our lives. He wants to be the point of our lives. He doesn't want to be part of all the things that enter our mind. He wants to be the point of the things we think about. And that's what happens when Isaiah sees him. He says, I see him on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. See, in the ancient Near East, the king's robe, the greater his glory, the longer the train. And and what Isaiah sees is this vision of the king and his robe or his glory is just filling the temple. And he's exalted. He is above Isaiah. Isaiah is amazed by it. In their book on kingdom through covenant, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham say, that this is true not just in Isaiah 6, but it's true of the whole Bible. From the beginning of the Bible, God is introduced and identified as all-powerful Lord who created the universe by His Word. While He Himself is uncreated, independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, in need of nothing outside Himself, He rules with perfect power, knowledge, and righteousness. And in this rule... God loves, hates, commands, comforts, punishes, rewards, and strengthens all according to the personal covenant relationships he establishes with his creation. As creator and covenant Lord, he's not some abstract, impersonal force. He's the triune Lord who is the moral standard of the universe, and as creator, he demands perfect love, devotion, and complete obedience from his image bearers, that is, Humanity. The triune God of the Bible is the only one true God, utterly unique and unwilling to share his glory. For this reason, he alone is to be worshiped, trusted, and obeyed. He is the King. Psalm 103 19 says it this way The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. See, when you see the King, there is highness, but there's not just highness, there's holiness. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic beings that scholars believe they look like scales covered their body and they're flying around the throne of God and these messengers of God, these worshipers of God are covering their face in his presence. And they're covering their feet because they're on holy ground. And they're flying and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, we've talked about this before. This holy, holy, holy is saying that God is holy in the most superlative way. In Hebrew, there's not holy and then holier and then holiest. There's holy, and then there's holy, holy, if something's a bit more holy. And then there's holy, holy, holy. God stands in stark contrast to everyone and everything in creation is the one true and holy God. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, one commentator states it like this. The common understanding is that he is set apart or other, but holiness is much more than his distinctness. And transcendence. God's holiness is particularly associated with his sovereignty, assayity, majesty, and devotion to himself. He's the one Lord over all. He is Exalted, self sufficient, and self determined, both metaphysically and morally. He's categorically different in nature and existence from everything he has made. He can't be compared with the idols of the nations or be judged by human standards. He is holy in and of himself. God alone is God. He's too pure to behold evil, unable to tolerate wrong. He must act with holy justice when his people rebel. And yet it's God who loves his people with a holy love. Sometimes we look at scripture and God's holiness and his love can seem like they're in tension with one another, but they're not. See, his holiness and his love finally and fully come together at the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus, who is just, righteous, perfect, lived as you and I have lived, but without sin. When he Died for our sins. The holiness of God and the love of God were displayed in perfect beauty. See, there there are a couple of ways that we fail to understand God's holiness and this impacts us. First, is we fail to understand it at our initial surrender. We fail to understand the set apartness, the perfect purity of God is a big deal because we have a sin problem that won't be solved by our actions. It can only be solved by the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then I think as believers, we also fail to to understand the holiness of God in our daily surrender. And I think we do because we become friends with the world. The Bible says anyone who's friends with the world is at enmity with God. Lucas, you know how to tell if somebody's friends with the world? It's if they're a little bit worse than me, right? That's how we tell that. Oh, they're kind of friends with the world. I, I mean, I would never be, and I know none of you would ever be friends with the world, right? But people go a little bit further than I am, they get into friendship with the world. It, it's kind of like if somebody said to me, hey, Chase, are you, are you friends with this guy named Harold? I go, no, no, we're not friends, well, isn't, isn't Harold the mechanic? No, he's a diagnostic technician, and he won several awards as a diagnostic technician. Well, you know his wife's name? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know his wife. He's got, he's got four daughters. He's got a couple of grandkids now. Well, who's his favorite college football team, Chase? Y'all, y'all friends? No, 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 we're not friends, but he doesn't like college football. He likes the mountain bike, and if he ever tells you to go with him on easy trails, don't, because he'll blow your legs up, right? <laughs> well, what color is his hair? Short, right? How's his hearing? He doesn't have any. What's his favorite drink? I can't tell you. We're at the church house. If if you had something that you needed at 2 a.m., would you would you call Harold or would he call you if he yeah, he'd be one of the first people I'd call? Are you are you, you friends with Harold? No, no, we're not we're not friends, right? You friends with the world? We like the world's Instagram posts. We love the songs that it sings. We love the jokes that it tells. We love the shows that it streams. You friends with the world? No, 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 no. See, if we get a vision of the king, there's a highness and there's a holiness. It would make us surrender in ways that we might not even just imagine or maybe this year, it'd just make us surrender something new to him. There's not just highness. There's not just holiness. There's also heaviness. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. When I used to read this as a young believer, I would read this as the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of God. But I don't think that's what this is saying. I think it's referring to the angels. These worshipers. Their voices are booming so loudly that it's shaking the foundation of the threshold as they declare the holiness of God. And one of the most amazing paradoxes in all of scripture is that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and so that we can, we can come before the throne of grace with confidence. We step into the presence of holy God with confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's just an amazing thing let's see when when we initially do that when we initially look at surrender we got to realize it takes something for us to be able to step into the throne of grace see that's what Isaiah sees there's highness there's holiness there's heaviness and then there's Helplessness. He says, woe is me, for I'm lost, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I, I believe this is referring to this idea that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Isaiah and all Israel have unclean lips because they have unclean hearts. They're duplicitous. They say truth about God with their mouths, but they're not living like people who are following the God of the Bible. And Isaiah says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm in trouble. I got a problem because I've seen the king. See, the doctrine of the sinfulness of humanity is clear throughout Scripture, and it means that we have a, a sin problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created to give him glory. We were created to spread the image of God and make much of Him through all the earth. And and Adam and Eve, we all sinned and now we all sin and fall short of His glory. There's no one on earth who's always righteous and, and never sins. We have a sin problem. And because we're sinners, we sin in lots of ways. We sin with our passions as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. Paul is explaining the sin problem of humanity to the church in Rome and he quotes a psalmist. No one understands and no one seeks for God with our passions. We seek all kinds of things and those things are called idols when they become the passion of our life. No one seeks after God We seek these other things to satisfy us. We sin with our passions, with our hearts, and with our minds. But we don't just sin with our passions, we sin with our hands, all have turned aside together. They have become worthless, no one does good. With our hands, we all sin, not even one does good. We don't just sin with our passions and with our hands, we sin with our mouths. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We speak evil of people created in the image of God. They, we sin with our feet. In their paths are ruin and misery. We walk in a way, we don't wake up going, man, I'd really like to walk in the path of ruin and misery today. That sounds fun. But when we sin, we walk in a path that leads to ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There have been other times in human history where people would divide over anything. This is not the first time, but it's happened again. We'll just divide over anything. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here's the thing, it's not that we don't know that there's a God, we do. But it's like we just don't care. Like Paul said in Romans 1, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Creation is just screaming, 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 there's a God who made me. And the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. See, sin in its essence is rebellion against God, the king, and his claims. It's a declaration of our own moral autonomy. I can do whatever I want. And it results in condemnation, guilt, and death. See, nobody in the West wants to talk about this anymore, but I find this ironic because people outside the West get it and talk about it. Other religions, even even Buddhists get it and talk about it, that, that they have a problem. Muslims talk about the fact that they have a sin problem. They try to earn their righteousness. Hindus talk about the fact that they have a sin problem. A friend of mine sent me a video... Just a few weeks ago, and it's a picture of Hindus worshiping an idol, and they they get into the Ganges River, which is this dirty river that they call holy. And they get in the Ganges River, and they take the water, and they put it on themselves over and over and over, trying to wash their sins away. And I watched that video, and my heart was broken because I thought it's the right idea, But it's the wrong source. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away the sins of humanity, your sins and mine. Well, at this point in the sermon, you go, wow, Chase, happy new year, thanks. (laughs) But here's this reality for Isaiah and the reality for us. When we understand our helpless estate, woe is me, I'm undone. There's highness, there's holiness, there's heaviness, there's helplessness, but then there's help. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Just imagine your Isaiah and this scaled flying creature grabs a burning coal with tongs from the altar and is coming towards you with it. And the angel touches his lips, the point of sin Isaiah has identified for himself and he says, your sin is taken away. It's atoned for. See, there's help not with burning coals for us but with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's a better mediator. He comes to God on our behalf With his righteous blood, he's a better sacrifice. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, and it still is, but the blood of Jesus, by one sacrifice, he made righteous the many. He's a better provision. He's given us his spirit to guide us into all truth, and we've got a better promise that his law is written on the hearts of those who believe. So we surrender, committed by God's grace and empowered by God's spirit to do God's will no matter what we face. See, we're we're talking about this in staff this week. One One of our pastors said this, that people change when they hurt enough that they have to. People change when they hurt enough that they have to. People change when they see enough that they're inspired to. People change when they learn enough that they want to. And people change when they receive enough that they're able to. Isaiah got to a point in life where he hurt enough. King Uzziah, national hero, his relative had died. And Israel's in disarray. He's hurt enough that he wants to change. He sees enough that he's inspired to. He sees the king. And that changes everything. He learns enough that this God is holy. He learns enough that he wants to and then he receives enough that he's able to. His guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Have you heard enough over what life has brought on you or what you've brought to life? Have you seen enough that God made him who knew no sin? Have you learned enough that in him you could become the righteousness of God? Have you received enough? See, Isaiah, he saw the king. I really think he had to surrender. What else was he going to do? See, when when you get help, you also get a hard question. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, here am I, because that's what you say when you see the king. There's this humble confidence. One of our pastors said this week, there's this humble confidence that comes from grace. Woe is me comes first and it leads to here am I. Here am I. Well, what does this look like daily? See, I think initially it's this here am I. God, I give myself to you and I trust the person and work of Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection to save me and free me from my sins. But then there's this daily here am I. Well, what might it look like in your life and mine? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Here, Here am I. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here am I. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here am I. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets here am I sell your possessions and give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, you could say, well, come on, Chase, let's not get crazy, right? Or you could say, here am I. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You really want me to push this next button? Here am I, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Here am I. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Maybe that would be your point of surrender, husbands, this year. And gave himself up for her. Here am I. Parents. Do not provoke your children to anger, fathers, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All all together, you can see there's sort of this communal movement to our surrender. We do it together in family. We do it together as a church. We say, here am I. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Here am I. But exhort one another every day. Again, it's together in community. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here am I. Yeah, we're we're here, Lord. We surrender, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. Here am I. Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Here am I. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk so that again together you may grow up into salvation. Here am I. And see, then surrender and community leads to mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Here am I. And I I hope we could say, like Paul told the church at Philippi, for you it's been granted that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe but also suffer. Can Can we say, here am I, here am I. See, all these here am I's overflow from this here am I, I'm with my King Jesus. I know him, he loves me, he's transforming me, he's empowering me, so I've surrendered initially and now I surrender again, I surrender again, I surrender again. When Isaiah surrendered, after he said here am I, there was a hard place God responds, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God's sending Isaiah back to Israel and they're not gonna listen. And sometimes when you say, here am I, he might send you to something difficult too, but it's a good reminder really. Because not everybody... Not everybody gets a vision of the king. Are you moved this year? Were you moved last year by a vision of Jesus so bright and beautiful that you couldn't do anything other than say, here am I? And then surrender. Surrender, when I when I think about surrender, it's easy for me to think about it as surrender to a king, right? And what, what actually initially comes to my mind, I, I think I've shown it here before, is this picture of my granddad was on the USS Missouri when this Japanese general was writing the surrender to the United States at the end of World War II. But there's another type of surrender I think that this really flows into and then back out of. And the New Testament gives a picture of it. It's really wonderful. At the end of Luke 7, it's about... Verses 36 through 50, there's this sinful woman and Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee named Simon and this sinful woman comes into the house and she had really, in their culture, no business being there. The the Greek would suggest that she was a prostitute showing up at a Pharisee's house. There's just no way. But she doesn't care. She finds out Jesus is there. She leaves whatever she's doing and she goes to be with Jesus. And she comes in the room and she's just enamored. She sees the king. And she goes and falls at his feet and just begins to weep on his feet. And then she takes her hair and begins to wash his feet with her hair. And she brings this bottle of perfume with her that would have been a value of about a year's wages for her. And she breaks it open. And she begins to anoint him. And this perfume just fills the room. Everyone is enveloped by this aroma. As, as she says, I want to serve you. I surrender. You're the king. I recognize you. Well, Simon the Pharisee right there. He's right there looking at the same Jesus, but he doesn't see it and he doesn't get it. He goes, if she knew, if this guy knew what sort of woman this is, he were really a prophet, right? He, would, he wouldn't go near her. He, w- he wouldn't touch her. Because he doesn't understand the work that God has come to do in the world. And, and so Jesus goes, hey, Simon, you see this woman? Well, everybody in the room saw that woman, right? You see this woman? When I came in here, you, you didn't wash my feet. Nobody did. You didn't give me a kiss. She's kissing my feet, wiping my feet with her hair. She's anointed me. She knows who I am and she knows she's being forgiven much. You don't understand how great your sin problem is and you don't understand your need to be forgiven. But the woman does and she just dares to draw near and I think scripture would call us and surrender, not just to draw near, but to draw near with confidence. I, I heard somebody singing about this a, uh, a couple of weeks ago at at one of David Richardson's son's weddings. Scott Baer uh, was singing, Mark was playing. There's this song, Caught Up in Your Presence, and I would, I'd sing it for you, but I don't have pipes like, uh, like Scott does, and you would say, Chase, Jesus wants you to surrender by never singing again, right? But it, it says this, I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment and I never want to leave. See, I, th- I think surrender is just about getting this vision of this king who has redeemed us and being so enamored with him that it just changes Everything. As when we see God clearly, we see ourselves rightly, and we become committed by the grace of God and empowered by the Spirit of God to live according to the will of God no matter what we face. See, Isaiah 6, he sees the king and he's high and lofty. He's holy. Isaiah 57 15, God says of himself, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. See, in our, in our house, the way we talk about this is surrender is all about putting your yes on the table that you get a vision of Jesus so beautiful, so all-encompassing, so amazing. Who he is and what he's done is so great that all you can do is say, here's my yes to whatever you say. I just give it to you. But not everybody's amazed by the king. Not everybody is in awe of his word. I just wonder today, how might God call you to surrender this year, to give yourself fully to Him? It might be initially that you say, I want what Jesus did on the cross to count for me. I want to embrace His resurrection and walk in new life as a new believer. It might be one specific thing. Yeah, I got to lay this down to Him. I, I got to give this to Him. I want control of it. I'm afraid, but I got to give this to Him. What I'd like to ask you to do is just to stand. Everybody go ahead. And as you stand, we're gonna sing. As we sing, I, I just wanna invite you to surrender however you might. And I'm gonna recommend just a couple of possibilities. This, this kind of area in front of us that we're gonna call our altar is gonna be open. And, and it's not that there's anything special about this place. But sometimes physically giving your posture to what you're spiritually, emotionally, and mentally doing can be a really good thing. So I'm just gonna invite anybody who wants to just to come to this altar and kneel before the Lord and surrender. Maybe maybe you do that right, right where you're standing. You might just wanna kneel right there. But in these moments, could we just say to God, I surrender Jesus, we just want to dare to come into your presence with confidence by your blood and resurrection. And by your grace, empowered by your spirit, we want to say yes to your will, whatever it might be. We want to surrender anew as a people of Temple Bible Church to say we wholly and fully belong to you. Our yes is on the table. Father, whatever that step might be for all of us today, help us to be willing to say yes and surrender to you. We know you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.